so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the weekly tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the public square. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Ross Hastings, an ethicist and theologian who's the author of a recent book entitled Pastoral Ethics, Moral Formation as the Life of the Trinity. And today we talk about the nature of pastoral ethics and moral formation. Dr. Hastings received his first PhD in chemistry from Queen's University in Kingston and his second PhD in theology from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He's the Sangwoo Yutong Chi Professor of Theology and Pastoral Theology at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, and is the author of several books, including Missional Church as well as Theological Ethics. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Hastings, thank you so much for joining us here on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, I would love to hear a little bit about your background. I know you have two PhDs. A lot of people struggle to get one. Uh, You have two in very distinct fields. So kind of what's your journey into studying ethics and studying theology and how these kind of areas overlap in your life? Wonderful. Yes. So I pursued a career in chemistry first, but I I had a deep hunger for the Word of God when I was very young, the age of 14 read through the Bible every year and began to preach. Um, I was raised in the Plymouth Brethren, which means that you can preach uh, without being ordained. So I preached my first full sermon when I was 17. And throughout my undergraduate in chemistry, I think I had a growing sense that I was called to the pastor, but wasn't quite sure what to do with it because um, our denomination didn't have pastors at that point. So I pursued what was next, which was to pursue a PhD in chemistry at Queen's in uh, in Ontario. And uh, during that time, the whole time I was working on my PhD in chemistry, I was a pastor of, a, of a, a small church in Kingston. And by the time I was finished my PhD in chemistry, I had a stronger sense that I was called to pastoral ministry. So I came out to Regent College with two kids and, the, and a wife and uh, pursued uh, a master's at Regent. And uh, during that time, pastored full-time as well um, a church. And then I pastored uh, two other churches, one in Montreal and latterly one in White Rock. But um, halfway through my period in White Rock, the elders very kindly said, you know, Ross, we'd like to give you a sabbatical. 
and um, we'll give you a year off. And I said, well, would it be possible to take three months off each year rather than a full year? Things happen when people take a year away from their church, happens to the church and happens to them, et cetera, et cetera. So I got to take three months off each year for four years and engaged in PhD studies at St. Andrews in theology. And uh, so that's how that happened and, and ended up uh, after uh, a little while after that, taking a position at Regent in theology. So, yeah. Now, I know you've written a lot on theology as well as ethics. You have your prior book that you wrote, Theological Ethics. This one is Pastoral Ethics. What ultimately kind of prompted and led you to write a book specifically on pastoral ethics? Yeah. So I've been teaching pastoral ethics as a distinct course at Regent probably for 17 years. And so it it seemed natural to put my lectures uh, into a book. The Theological Ethics book uh, was really my way of trying to make sure I was grounded, had my ethics grounded in theological thinking. Um, So that is the more, the, the broader scope kind of ethical work that I've done is the theological ethics piece. And then this pastoral ethics book, the first three three chapters are on are really a summary of theological ethics, you know, ethics as theological ethics as trinitarian ethics as gospel ethics, et cetera, et cetera. So the uh, the pastoral ethics uh, I, I then wrote um, after the theological ethics, pastoral ethics really came. You know, my de- my desire to write about pastoral ethics flowed out of my deep concern for the church with regard to ethics in so many areas that I find pastors are not necessarily prepared well for. You know, the obvious one is sexual ethics, but there's all kinds of other areas of ethics, confidentiality, ethics of uh, hiring and firing, and, uh, you know, all kinds of things that... And so I've used... What, what I did with my lectures is I used the Ten Commandments as a rubric, not because I think the Ten Commandments is the primary way of doing ethics, uh, ethics must flow from the gospel. Actually, the Ten Commandments are preceded by that great statement, which is a gospel statement. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Um, that's a statement of the gospel. And then the Ten Commandments flow from that. But nevertheless, I, I do think the Ten Commandments have a place in Christian ethics, a significant place. And I have used the Ten Commandments as a rubric for looking at all of the areas of ethics that a pastor might uh, encounter. So... Yeah, that's that's really a little bit about. I, I think sometimes churches are either in a, in a legalistic framework or they're in an antinomian framework. That is, they think there is no place for law, there is no place for ethics. Um, it's all grace. When in fact, uh, when we live into grace, when we live into Christ, then what flows from that is uh, the life of sanctification, which includes which includes uh, ethics. Yeah, one of the things that I really, uh, really like about your book and overall the work that you do, especially in ethics, is that you remind the church, uh, not just the academy, but specifically the church, that ethics isn't some kind of esoteric discipline that's separate from the rest of life. I think often we think of philosophical ethics, we think of like the trolley problem and all these kind of problems that we encounter, but don't seem real life in some sense. They don't seem to be something that we're dealing with. And one of the ways that on this podcast, when we talk about the nature of ethics, is I often talk about it in light of discipleship. It's about how to, we're becoming more like Christ. We're being that, it's that process of sanctification that you alluded to. And so, obviously, in the midst of that, much of the pastoral ministry, much of pastoral life is framed in terms of ethics. But as we said, and we'll probably talk a little bit later, uh, we're not often equipped 
uh, especially in theological and seminary education, with a robust study of ethics. But that's actually one of the primary duties of the pastor. Um, and we'll talk about that later as kind of the pastor's ethicist. But you alluded to a couple of the concerns or kind of questions. And I know even in the book, you write kind of opening, talking about some questions you even faced in pastoral ministry. What are some of those ethical questions or ethical concerns that pastors and ministry leaders are facing, not just sexuality issues, but what are some of these other issues that um, are really ethical issues uh, that we're being presented with and kind of confronted with in pastoral ministry today? Yeah, it's so interesting when the writer of the Hebrews defines maturity in chapter 5 of that book, uh, he talks about maturity not as theological knowledge so much, not as, um, you know, how I feel about, about God. Those are not that those things are unimportant, but he defines it as discerning between right and wrong. Um, and so, yes, ethics is so important. I mean, it must be kept within theology. It must be embraced in that way. But at the same time, it's, it's so crucial. And yeah, I mean, the number of almost every day, all of us face ethical issues. But in the pastorate, you know, there are things like confidentiality, for example, which I mentioned earlier, confidentiality. When, when, when can a pastor guarantee confidentiality and when, when can they not guarantee confidentiality? On the one hand, a pastor wants to maintain a profound sense of trust that people can come and share with them about anything. On the other hand, there are a couple of situations where a pastor cannot keep confidentiality. So if you come to a pastor and you convey information about a child being abused or sexually abused or any other, then you have a duty to report. So you know, your, your duty to, re to report to the child care society in your particular a state or, or a city or whatever, you, you, you can't keep that confidential. Similarly, I would, I would argue that if somebody comes into your, into your office and tells you about the fact that an elder has committed adultery, you, know, you somehow have to convey, yes, I'm a confidential person, but there are some limits I have to share with. This cannot be kept secret um, because we do ethics in community. I, I, in my book, I talk about an in, in, uh, in vitro fertilization situation where couple um, had processed all of their fertilized, um, their zygotes, and one was left and it turned out it was damaged. And they wanted to know whether they should take this on or not. And they called me and like, it's as if it's as if it was yesterday. I still feel the tension of this. They, they called me as they're on their way down and they, they were just on their way to this um, clinic. And they called me and said, what do you think, Pastor? Should I, should I take this or not? And I use it as an example in the book of how when we encounter pastoral ethical situations or any ethical situations, the first thing we do is we pray. Um, I sent up a prayer, and I, then I'm seeking to be informed in my mind about what the Word of God might say from outside of myself. I'm also seeking to hear the voice of the Spirit from inside of myself. All important, I'm also wanting to hear the voice of the community around me with people of wisdom who can address the situation. And I said, look, give me a few minutes. I'm going to phone a, a person who is in this field in medicine just south of the border here in Washington State. And she, she gave a great answer that helped resolve the whole situation. So, you know, that's an example of, wow, I was out of my depth. One doesn't need to rush into decisions. But in this case, I was forced to make a fast decision. Uh, but I still had time to consult. And so I think that little, the little formula for me was, Try to hear the word of God from outside of yourself. Try to listen to the voice of the Spirit within. 
try to hear the community around you and you'll usually reach a reasonable decision knowing that we're, we're never we're never 2020 we're never 100 percent in this uh, now but not yet season and god has grace grace for us so perhaps one other situation is uh, when you hire pastors i was a senior pastor of a large church by canadian standards so we had occasion to hire and, and to seek people from other churches uh, how do you do that should you even seek a pastor who, who's remotely close to you? And if you, if you do think it's okay and they're far enough away from you as a church, should you actually call the senior pastor be, before you approach a person who might, you might be pursuing as a youth pastor? There, there are all kinds of ethical issues around that that may seem small, but they're, they're quite important. God wants us to be in communities of justice that reflect his, his glory. Yeah, and that's one of the things you do throughout the book is kind of, as you said, you frame it around the Ten Commandments, which I do have a question for. I want to talk a little bit about that framing later, uh, but I really appreciate kind of the the practical tone. There's so much practical uh, wisdom that can be gained that we need to be focusing on a lot of these issues. Well, Dr. Hastings, you, you wisely point out in the book uh, specifically about the difference in some sense about the difference of uh, dogmatics and ethics and how they really make up this discipline of theology, which reminds me of a quote that I read years ago from the German theologian Christoph Ernst Luthart, who said, God first loved us as the summary of Christian doctrine, and we love him as the summary of Christian morality. And I really love the way that Luthart frames that in the sense of theology and ethics, or as you say, dogmatics and ethics that make up the theological discipline. I was going to see if you could help unpack kind of the relationship between these two fields, because I think we often talk about having the right beliefs, or we talk about having the right actions, but we rarely pull these two things together as we're thinking about the nature of theology and the nature of God's revelation. So can you speak a little bit of the relationship of theology or dogmatics as well as ethics? Absolutely. Yeah. One of the people I quote when I'm talking about this subject is Stanley Harwas, who says, um, and, until the Enlightenment, there were, there were no ethics. But what he means is that ethics were so embedded within Christian theology and the gospel that there weren't separate sections needed uh, on ethics. And that's kind of the way Karl Barth writes as well. He doesn't really, he, he does have a small volume on ethics, but uh, he believes that ethics and theology are so close, must be kept so closely together that he doesn't want a separate section on ethics. Um, other theologians uh, have gone in the opposite direction and have done both dogmatics and ethics in separate sections, but have tried to make sure that people understand that the ethics is an outflow of the dogmatics. If I think of, if I think of two biblical authors, um, they who illustrate both of these approaches is Peter Peter writes in 1 Peter a whole lot of ethics, but it's, it's completely ensconced within his teaching of the gospel. Whereas Paul tends to give us the indicatives of the gospel and then the imperatives of the gospel. Um, he wants us to carry the indicatives over into the imperatives. So, you know, there's two different biblical authors who go about this in different ways. What I've tried to stress in, in my the, the first three chapters of introduction to theological ethics is just how closely the, the gospel and ethics must be. I mean, Bonhoeffer has been very helpful to me in terms of the fact that he, he says that ethics, when it's separated from relationship with God, was the primal sin of humanity. That was precisely Adam and Eve's sin, um, that they wanted to know um, good and evil apart from relationship with God. 
And so, and so he goes on to say that, you know, when we, when we take ethics away from the gospel, from Christian theology in its core sort of conciliar nature, uh, then we, uh, ethics becomes uh, sinful. It becomes idolatrous. Our desire to know right and wrong uh, becomes a stumbling block to us. Uh, whereas when we do ethics flowing out of God's love for us, the fact that God is for us, that God has drawn us uh, into relationship with himself, uh, and we are in participation and union with him, then ethics, that's the way in which ethics um, must be viewed. It's a product of being in Christ, um, which I think is the most important prepositional phrase of the New Testament. Being in Christ gives us both uh, the wonder of justification, that we are justified before God, and it also introduces us into the life of sanctification, which includes ethics. Um, John Calvin spoke about union with Christ as uh, unio Christi, if you like. Union with Christ is the foundation of the two graces that we are given in Christ, justification and sanctification. Justification is our um, being pronounced righteous. And we can pursue ethics in freedom because we are already justified. And yet those who are in Christ are also being transformed by that relationship with Christ. Christ is in them by the Holy Spirit. And as a result, they are being transformed in a progressive way, empowered by the Holy Spirit, empowered by that union with Christ. And that is the source, that is the, 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 the crux, I think, of the, that's, that's the place where we do ethical reflection, and it's the place where we do moral formation, and it's the place where we can uh, also speak publicly as the church in Christ. We can speak uh, from the church into the world in that place of grace and union with Christ. Yeah, and I love how you're talking about that nature. Not only it's kind of thinking inwardly as the church about doing this moral formation, but also kind of our public witness and how we engage the wider culture around us. And so I wanted to kind of hone in on that and see if you could speak to some of the kind of, I know early on in the book, you talk about some of the ontological, metaphysical, and epistemological foundations of the Christian ethic. What are some of those foundations that are different within the Christian ethic than that of kind of the increasingly secularized culture? Are there certain assumptions, epistemological and metaphysical assumptions or differences between these two formations of ethics? Yes, I, I, do, I do think so. Um, we kind of, in my opinion, we seem to have more than one viewpoint on this within, uh, shall I say, evangelical ethicists, eth ethicists who believe in the gospel and who, who believe that the church is the community where ethics should be done because it's the, it's the church that's in union with Christ. Um, and some, it uh, seems to be some uh, theological ethicists are content to say, let's be the church. Uh, let's demonstrate what it means to be a community of justice. Uh, let's be a community where we model appropriate sexual ethics, for example, um, and allow the spirit to use that community if you like. But let's not be speaking into the, into the, in the public square very much at all. Um, and then you've got others who uh, want to speak into the public square in ways that I would describe as uh, as unevangelical, that is, they speak in legal terms um, and makes assumptions about um, epist the epistemology and ontology 
uh, of, of, of people who are not in the church. Um, and therefore, sometimes the church comes across legalistically and in a condemning way, uh, rather than in a winsome way that reflects the gospel. Somewhere in between those two positions, um, I think, is a, a gentler yet bold way of the church explaining itself as an ethical community, the church speaking in gospel ways in the community, pointing to the fact that um, there are reasons why um, God says what he says in a number of areas that relate to shalom, the experience of shalom and flourishing in society. And so, so the foundations of that speaking are the belief that uh, yes, people who are not Christians perhaps do not have the capacity that we that uh, the capacity in some ethical areas and, and especially in terms of the grounding of ethics. But the Spirit of God is at work in them, and we should expect the Spirit to be at work in them. And and others might say we should assume common grace uh, that by, by common grace uh, the unconverted person uh, is able to perceive um, ethical issues. And therefore, we should speak on that on that on that ground. And yet, another way of thinking about people in the public square is that Christ has died not just for for the church but for the world. And uh, we should therefore speak in the public square in anticipation that God will be at work, and that um, that the role of the church uh, in this now but not yet season of history is to be a restrainer of evil. And so, we should speak in the public square. Yeah, so I've tried to lay out, you know, some people say don't speak in the public square. Others saying do speak in the public square, and they do so in unevangelical ways that do more harm than good, that are sort of power-based rather than grace-based. And then there's a sort of in the, in the middle, um, a speaking in, in intelligent, researched ways in the public square that are characterized by the gospel, uh, that are characterized by grace that point to the results of living ethically in various areas uh, that will, that, that those results being sh greater shalom in your life. Yeah. In the book, you kind of, as you mentioned, those first three chapters, you kind of uh, summarize a lot of the theological ethics, especially that of grounded in the Trinity. So you speak about kind of the ontological foundation of the Trinity for ethics, as well as the epistemological grounding uh, in the revelation of the triune God um, and how that helps to anchor and shape what is a distinctively kind of Trinitarian approach to ethics. I wanted to see if you could unpack that a little bit and kind of talk to us what you what you mean by a Trinitarian approach to ethics. Yeah, so Trinitarian, I think, has six or seven meanings, which I outline there. Uh, perhaps I could just focus on one or two of them. I think that primarily the concept of a Trinitarian ethic is the idea that God is a God of love, in the, and, um, that the, the triune God is defined by love, that he is for humanity, and uh, that what he gives us by way of ethical commands is because he loves us, it's for our own good. I think there's another, another aspect of being Trinitarian is that I do think that we as humans are image bearers of the Trinity uh, in the sense that like uh, within the Trinity we have one God who's one in essence, one in communion, but who is three irreducibly distinct persons uh, in relation, persons who are each in the other and each for the other. 
to sort of use a very popular phrase, at the very center of the cosmos, at the center of existence, is a relationship, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when he creates human beings in, in the image of God, I think in light of the full revelation of the Bible, all the New Testaments, we can assume that we are, um, it's not just Imago Dei, it's Imago Trinitatis. We've been, we've been made in the image of the Trinity, and we as persons are therefore not individuals. We are persons in relation with God, in relation with one another. We are, in other words, we are built for community, um, and that has very significant uh, overtones for how we think about uh, ethics. I mean, the, the primary ethic, it seems to me, in secular society in our day is individualism. Uh, what I want to do, I have the right to do. I have the right to do this with my body. I have the right to change my sex. I have because um, individual, I'm an individual. Um, and it's kind of the enlightenment taken to an extreme. Um, I think, therefore, I am. Whereas a biblical view of humanity is not, I think, therefore, I am, but I belong, therefore, I am. Therefore, our ethical decision-making is not just what I want. It's what the community wants. It's what my, the people uh, in my church might want. And above all, it's what God might want because I'm a person in community with accountability in that sense. So I think one of the most important aspects of Trinitarian ethics is um, Dennis Hollinger brought this out, and I've been quite influenced by his work in this regard. He talked about the fact that Trinitarian ethics is the idea that we start thinking about ethics with the triune God, and that the triune God is the ground, the norm, and the power for Christian ethics. So he's the ground um, in terms of his love within the Trinity for the other, uh, which, which flowed into creation and has flowed into his relationships with humanity. He's the ground of ethics. He's the one who um, gives us laws uh, because they are good. And, um, and ethics is all about finding the good. Ultimately, God himself is the good. And uh, we, if, we, if, if we think about ethics outside of the context of God as being good, we, I think we, we, we are adrift. Um, second, he's the norm for ethics in terms of the depth of the intra- Trinitarian love, which has been expressed extra-Trinitarian in the, the gospel, in the giving of his son Jesus, in the sending of the Spirit. And uh, it's as we live in participation with the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit that we then are able to do ethics, are able to live the ethical life. And the power, of course, is just stressing that last point. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, without the fact that we are grounded in Christ, um, then we are powerless to fulfill the Christian ethic. And I, what I've argued in my book, in both my Trinitarian, uh, the, the Theological Ethics book and this book, that thinking of ethics in a Trinitarian way surpasses, although it sometimes includes, all of the other popular models for doing ethics. So deontological, uh, which means ethics uh, by way of rules, the word deon means rules, utilitarian, meaning uh, means and ends, doing our ethics by way of consequence, etc., sometimes called consequentialist ethics, and even virtue ethics. So virtue ethics is very popular in our day. Um, it's the idea that if we are in Christ and developing the life of discipleship, 
being sanctified, if you like, that we're, we cultivate virtues, and from those virtues flow behavior. Uh, so worry not so much about ethical decision making. That will come naturally when you're um, de- being developed, de- you're developing character or virtue, uh, sometimes called communitarian ethics, because of the importance of the community in that. I'm, I'm a believer in virtue ethics, but I don't think it's the, it's the ultimate category. I think the ultimate category is trinitarian ethics, because that will include that will include deontology, utilitarian, and virtue ethics. Um, so, just one final point here. I know I'm going on a fair bit about this. Uh, one of the reasons why I think virtue ethics is subsidiary to trinitarian ethics is that at the heart of trinitarian ethics is the fact that our identity, our being, is persons in relation with the being of God. And persons is, a, for me, a more fundamental category than character. Character is part of personhood, but it's our, our, our ability to develop character apart from the fact that our persons are in Christ and in relationship with the triune God um, is nil. I'm actually very uncomfortable speaking about character ethics apart from participation with Christ. Yeah, and I think you really hit the nail on the head there because I often, when I'm teaching ethics to my students or writing about ethics, I'm often pressed to say, well, okay, well, tell me how the Christian ethic, is it a deontological ethic? Is it a utilitarian or consequentialist ethic? Or is it a virtue ethic? And I, I like the way you say it is that it's it's wholly distinct in many ways. It's the Christian ethic or the Trinitarian ethic is a very unique approach. I mean, it's a very Christian approach to these issues that makes up, you do have deontological areas where you have rules that God has laid out, uh, certain commands, but you also have certain ethics that flow from our ontology, how God has made us. There are certain consequences that you take into account as well as kind of developing character and virtue as well. And I really like the way you frame all of that up. And so one of the things that you do in the book, there's a specific person that you reference that I'm familiar with, and we've talked a little bit about here on the podcast, um, a gentleman named Jacques Ellul. And Ellul is really interesting to me um, one, because of my work in technology ethics and the philosophy of technology, Elul is a, one of the major figures in that area. And so he's talking a lot of my friends who are non-Christians are familiar with Elul as the sociologist, and they're familiar with him as a philosopher of technology, which, uh, to be honest with you, that's really where my knowledge of Elul is. But Elul is kind of an enigma in some sense because he's also a Protestant theologian and ethicist. And he's written a good bit about Christian ethics. And so I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up his work, uh, given that you kind of extend, kind of talk about Elul and kind of the way he frames up uh, the Christian ethics. So I was going to say, I'm not one who has done a lot of reading in Elul in terms of Christian ethics. I wanted to see if you could speak to some of the unique characteristics or unique aspects of the way Elul approaches the Christian ethic. Yeah, I start the section off on theological ethics by talking about Elul. And as I was reading it over today, I kind of wonder if I did the right thing because he's quite difficult to understand at times. And in terms of his basic assumptions, he's quite Bartian um, and and reformed um, because he does think of fallen humanity as being unable to discern morality. And so he's not a big fan of natural law, natural law, more Catholic ethics. So, so Catholic people feel very free, by the way, talking in the public square because they're assuming that everybody has a sense of natural law. And one of the things, one of the things I admire about the Catholic Catholic ethicists is they do speak um, with certain clarity in that regard. And yeah, anyway, just just to say that, but not to get sidetracked on it. Elul, um, he's uh, influenced by Karl Barth with regard to uh, a lack of faith in fallen humanity. 
uh, a kind of fairly dark view of culture, and yet is also he's trying to say this is how we don't do ethics. Let's not try to do this uh, on the on the basis of a common epistemology because we don't have one, um, or even a common uh, if I use the word ontology here. That is is uh, you know the being of the person who doesn't know Christ. Um, it's been affected in terms of perception. So let's rather. And, and and he's a lot like Bonhoeffer in this regard as well. Is 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 um, there is a way of speaking at the end of the day? There is a way of speaking in the public square, but we must not do it with the, the false assumptions. I think we must do it on the basis of a Christ who has lived and died and risen again and ascended for the world, and and so one let let, let us speak in christological ways. Let us speak in ways that are informed by the gospel and trust the spirit of God to be at work in people as a result of that. Yeah, he's, uh, and it seems to me he's also trying to say quite clearly dogmatics itself is ethics. Alan Torrance has been a big influence in my life as well. And he, 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 he's similar to Elul, I think, in this regard, when he says that Christian doctrine is ethics laden and Christian ethics is doctrine laden. Um, since both articulate the triune grammar of our covenantal participation in Christ, the imperatives of ethical law derive from, repose upon, and witness to the indicatives of grace, the Christian ethicist must derive ought from is. That's perhaps one of the most influential sentences in my understanding of Christian ethics. No, I think that's really helpful. And that's one of the things that I think one of the things that we do this podcast for and a lot of the resources that we have here at the URLC specifically in ethics is to remind folks about the connection, as you even just kind of alluded to there, the connection between dogmatics and ethics and how these two disciplines are kind of the central disciplines of the Christian life. And so we'll make sure to link to some of Elul's works, especially that on Christian ethics within the show notes. But as as you're wrapping up and kind of talking about the nature of uh pastoral ethics in your work, uh, one of the things you do is you speak to the idea as the pastor as an ethicist. And this is kind of in light of the way a lot of folks, especially today, talk about the pastor as theologian or the pastor as a public theologian. Can you speak to why ethics then is so central to pastoral ministry in that sense that the pastor is an ethicist and how our ethics align and how Christian ethics aligns with uh, issues of discipleship? Well, sim- and you know the, the simple um, answer to that, I think, is because ethics belongs within theology. I love uh, Kevin Van Hoosier's work on the pastor as theologian, and I would just extend that and say, if, if the pastor is a theologian, the pastor is an ethicist, because you can't have theology without ethics, and you can't have ethics without theology. So, in in many ways, Christian living involves um, ethics, and uh, Christian living flows from Christian being, and. Uh, being in Christ and, and the gospel and so on. So I think if I look back to my experience as a pastor for 20 years or so, Jason, I wished I'd known more about this, especially is the church being a community of justice. You know, how how we did the budget, I'm not sure was always very well thought through uh, in terms of of justice, um, and that when you make a decision to not give money here and to give money there, um, that, that those are that's that's an ethical decision, um, and we need to think carefully through those things. You know, and I also think we pastors must model good ethics. And, and in our day, sadly, we've seen so much moral failure in the pastorate. 
pastors must model ethical behavior when it comes to sexuality. I think one of the biggest burdens I have behind this topic is somehow to curb the extent of sexual failure of pastors in in the ministry. Uh, we have a course at Regent called Soul of Ministry, which is uh, designed to help people who are becoming pastors to ha- cultivate, to, to, to be morally formed, uh, to be spiritually formed, yes, but to be spiritually formed means to be morally formed. We don't often put that those things together. And to, to know, be aware of their own sexual vulnerabilities, because often what happens is, is, is if a pastor does fall sexually in a church, the church is at sixes and sevens because they had no idea what to do. And they often what they do is they say, well, it was 50-50, the pastor and this woman, if it's a male pastor, the, the pastor and this woman, it's, it's 50-50. We deal with them both 50-50. That is utterly wrong ethically. It is 100% the pastor's fault. They are in a position of ethical power. And then I, so I talk about that in this book. I talk about how um, confession, yes, uh, confession leads to forgiveness. But there's a great statement in, um, in, in the chapter that I borrowed from Stuart Briscoe, who said that when pastors fall, we must be quick to restore and slow to reinstate um, because it takes time for people to trust a pastor again. So there's all kinds of things that that folks need to know um, that can and you know and how a community handles that it, it can blow a community apart if there's a lack of awareness of of the fact that everyone in that situation needs help the pastor's wife needs help the the person who um, was part of the affair uh, they need healing and forgiveness and then the the spouse if there's a spouse and you know it goes on and on and on and there'll be polarization of people in the church. It's a nightmare. All I'm trying to say is um, if we can avoid that at all costs, it'd be wonderful. And don't be naive about the ethical consequences of that as well as the moral ones. Yeah, and I really like the way you kind of speak to kind of moral formation. I think that's really key. And that's one of the reasons, not only in my work, but the work that we do here at the URLC is speaking to the kind of moral dimensions of the Christian life, which is a numerous. I mean, it's every single aspect. And that's why I go back to that quote from Luthart, where he says, you know, Christian doctrine is the summary of God speaking to us, revealing himself to us. And our response to God is ethics. It's the nature of morality. Um, And so it's so central to every aspect of our life. And that's one of the reasons we want to produce resources like this, as well as recommend resources. And that's how we always end our show here on the Digital Public Square, is talking about some other resources. Obviously, outside of your pastoral ethics, we'll also make sure to link to your theological ethics, as I see these two volumes kind of pairing together with one another. But what are some other major resources or readings that you would recommend to listeners who want to dig a little bit deeper into the study of ethics and moral formation? Regarding the very practical area I was speaking about a moment ago in sexual failure in the ministry, uh, there's a book which I would wish uh, could be in the hands of every uh, every pastor and every uh, elder, and that is Roy Bell and Stanley Grantz's book called The Betrayal of Trust. And it's, it's a full treatment of sexual failure in the ministry and, and how to recover from it. Um, that would be one. And I really recommend Dennis Hollinger's book, Choosing the Good, uh, as a good foundation for uh, theological ethics. It's an excellent book. He's also got one on the ethics of sexuality. Uh, Gary Enrig has an excellent book also on the ethics of sexuality. I think it's called Pure Desire or something like that. With regard to uh, the broader framework of, of theological ethics, I do think Stanley Harawas is, is worth, a, worth a read. 
Uh, he's written a number of books, and I tend to disagree with Stanley in terms of how much or how the church community should speak into culture. Um, but nevertheless, he's, uh, he's a great person to read in this area. Well, those are really helpful. And we'll make sure to link to all of those in the show notes for listeners to be able to check out. Um, but Dr. Hastings, one, I really appreciate the work that you've done in theology and ethics and helping to remind the church of the importance of ethics. But I also really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us today here on the Digital Public Square. Thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure and uh, blessings on your, in your ministry and your teaching and uh, in this podcast series. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing as well as to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Hastings and learn more about his new book, Pastoral Ethics, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology in the public square, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week. Thank you.